We continue our study there. The book of Ephesians, and we're on chapter 5, the subject being a spirit-filled life. And last week we covered the topic of how to walk in wisdom, not as the foolish do, but in wisdom. And we begin in Ephesians 5, verse 15, as Paul has written this book, one of the books that he has penned, one of the, those that are considered his um, prison epistles, a book that was intended to perhaps be circulated among a number of churches, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 15, though our text today will be from verse 18 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, or 15. It reads, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's bow once again before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would illumine our minds and grant to us understanding. Quicken our hearts, O God. May you show us great and mighty things you do not yet know. In Jesus' precious name, amen. During one of the conference sessions in Uganda among the pastors that I was speaking to there, there was a question and answer time. And there often is in these Conferences when the pastors would be able to stand up and ask any type of question that they wanted to. And the question that they had this time among many, one of them was regarding a particular qualification of an elder found in 1 Timothy 3.3. And that qualification was not addicted to wine. And when that subject came up, there was quite a stir among all of the pastors and the answer and, and the questions and the comments that were given. People would stand up and have very strong opinions. And I learned that there was a very strong, unspoken understanding that a pastor in Uganda does not allow even a drop of alcohol to ever touch their lips. Why? Because of the stigma of alcoholism to those who are not Christians. You see, in Uganda, it's a war-torn country and there was a particular problem with alcoholism. The war came and, as you know, it's considered the longest-running war in Africa, some 20, 25 years or whatnot. And so the government, rather than have these rebels come around and attack various villages, decided to corral the people into what was called internally displaced people's camps or IDP camps. And they would gather all of the people, tens of thousands of them, into one area because the government thought, well, you know what, it'll be easier for us to defend individuals if they were all in one area. 
or several large areas. But they didn't anticipate some of the problems that would come about by corralling, whether it's 50,000 or uh, 75,000 people into one area. You would have individuals who wouldn't have the basic needs, such as food, because they would receive food generally in the past because they were farmers, but now they had to be fed through the World Food Program that the United Nations had, and sometimes the United Nations couldn't get there because of the rebel army. You wouldn't have some basic sanitation. And you would have a problem because the men during the day would normally be farmers and they would work the land, but now you had people who weren't doing work. There were no crops really to farm. Men didn't have anything to do. And so men with idle time began to drink. And their addiction to alcohol led to many health and social problems. And it's hard to escape this issue of alcoholism or drinking of alcohol when you come to this passage because throughout church history it seems as if denominations and churches often debate whether or not it's appropriate or inappropriate, whether it's sinful or not sinful to drink or not to drink, even though it is not the point of the passage that is here. The point of the passage that is here is answering the question of what are you controlled by, what influences you, what affects your thinking in life. But because it's hard to escape the issue of alcohol and drinking, as this is a key passage for those who want to debate the subject, we'll cover part of it here. Because the first part of verse 18 addresses the negative aspect of not being drunk or controlled by wine. In verse 18, verse 18a, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now, there's no biblical prohibition specifically against the consumption of alcohol. In fact, there are some commendations, you might be surprised, to drinking alcohol. Sometimes the scriptures commend it. There were offerings that were given in the Old Testament, for example, in Exodus 29, verse 4, which were accompanied by drink offerings of wine. Or perhaps in Psalm 104, verse 15, talks about how wine makes a man's heart glad. Or Psalm 31, verse 6, which commends strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. And other passages that give evidence to some commendation to it. Jesus, in his very first miracle, in John chapter 2, turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And Paul advised Timothy, young Timothy, who was the pastor at Ephesus. He advised him in 1 Timothy 5.23, and he said, No longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, as he had some health difficulties. So wine is spoken of in some contexts in a positive light, the drinking of some alcohol in some parts of scripture. When it comes to the subject of drunkenness or being drunk, the scriptures are very clear about that as well, because the Bible clearly condemns it. Drunkenness is the consumption of alcohol that affects judgment, the point that it affects judgment, it affects your thinking, your thoughts, your actions, they are compromised, you're under the influence of alcohol. And in the Bible, there are plenty of examples for us to look at. 
in which the consequences of becoming drunk were catastrophic. Noah, after the flood in the book of Genesis, became drunk and committed some shameful acts. And then there was Lot, who escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. His daughters got him drunk and he committed incest. Then there was Belshazzar. Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, who became drunk along with his cohorts. And he praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone. And soon afterwards, he lost the kingdom and lost his life. And even the Corinthians in the New Testament church, during the time of the communion, they would gather and communion in the New Testament was sort of a potluck. They would call it a love feast and they would bring their food, but they would also bring drink. And some of them got drunk and God punished them. He punished them so that they would, some would become sick and some God took their life. Even last Friday evening, there was an illustration of, of drunkenness having catastrophic circumstances and many examples in 2020's special segment there where it talked about parents, particularly mothers, who were alcoholics. They would put their kids in the car when they were drunk and they would drive around and they would get into a very terrible accident. Proverbs warns us in 23, 19-21, it says, Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Not only that, in the New Testament, drunkenness is explicitly called a sin. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, that it is the lifestyle of the Gentiles. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, that we are not even to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunkard. And he continues, not even to eat with such a one. If someone, he says, I'm a Christian and yet they are a drunkard, don't even eat with them, don't associate with them. Galatians chapter 5, Paul again talks about the deeds of the flesh. And he lists a number of the deeds of the flesh from idolatry to sorcery to jealousy to outbursts of anger. And he includes in that list drunkenness and carousing of which he forewarned. He says, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we here, we often warn people about becoming drunk or, or alcohol because of its negative effects upon society. There are plenty of negative effects, maybe even personally. There are negative effects and people are warned against driving while drunk, the health effects about drinking, the liver damage, or where there might be even domestic violence, alcohol is often involved. Paul's concern here, though, is not that of a moral or even a social or societal issue. His concern here in this particular passage is that which is spiritual. And the placement of this warning within the context of the book of Ephesians is particularly telling. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, as you remember, was a major city in Asia Minor. It's, the ruins are located in modern-day Turkey. 
It was one of the major thoroughfares of commerce and people would travel through Ephesus. And one of the seven wonders of the world is the temple that was there. Because there was a 300, there was a 377 foot tall temple to the fertility goddess of Diana or also known as Artemis. And in many pagan religions, alcohol played a very significant role. Because you see, in the pagan worshippers' mind, they would commune with the gods by becoming drunk with music, with self-hypnosis, with frenzied dancing, with orgies, other types of things, along with heavy drinking, such that they would experience some ecstatic state and the ecstatic Ecstasy would open their consciousness even perhaps to suggestion or demonic possession. Not too much different than what you might hear in some clubs where there's drugs and alcohol and modern day subcultures and psychedelic music, etc., where there is a high that some might receive. Drunkenness in that day was therefore very much associated with pagan religions and that of worshipping idols. But not only does Paul write here that the association would be bad, but the character of a Christian is compromised because a person, as points out here, he contrasts them with a loss of self-control, being under the influence of alcohol. So we know then from the text of Scripture that the drinking is permitted, the consumption may be permitted, and sometimes even commended, but being drunk is always condemned and is sinful. The question that Christians often have, though, is, is it okay for a Christian to drink as long as they don't get drunk today? Is it okay for me to have a bottle of beer, a wine, or champagne, or a cooler, or whatever it might be? And the answer, I believe, with all Christian liberties such as this is, maybe. It depends. And the answer comes in understanding what this passage is. And the first part of understanding whether or not in its context it might be the same would be understanding the significance or the, what biblical wine is compared to what we might consider wine as today. So we look at that question. What was biblical wine like? When the Bible writes and you read in the book of Ephesians or you read in the Old Testament, wine, what does it mean? In our society, we know there's a difference in the alcoholic content of various drinks. Someone says they're going to have a beer. It's different than a cooler. It's different than a shot of whiskey. It's different than table wine, etc. And we know there's a difference between the different types of names that are used, the different words that in the English language are used for an alcoholic beverage. Well, in the Bible, there are also various words that are used for varying types of alcohol. There are three. One kind of wine is called sakara in the Greek or shikar in the Hebrew. And it's typically translated as strong drink. So when you read in the Old Testament about a Nazarite vow or some other thing, you should not drink strong drink. It is this particular word. It is typically that. It is called strong drink because of its very high alcoholic content. Proverbs 20 verse 1 uses this word and it says, Wine is a mocker, comma, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So, we have the word strong drink. We also have a second word that is used to, in the translation of the word wine, and that is the word glucose. 
Sounds exactly like our English word glucose and it is where we get that word from. And it is an especially sweet wine. And this word was the word that was used to describe the apostles when they began to speak in tongues in Acts chapter 2. Those that heard them said, oh, these men, they're drunk with wine. And this is the word that they used to describe that very sweet wine. Because wine fermented quickly and caused intoxication quickly even before it was aged, this was the kind of wine that was generally mixed with water before it was consumed. Not a very, not as common as the third term that is used for the translation of the word wine. And the third word for wine is not Bud Light or Stony, as some of you would say. It is the word Yayin or the word Oinos in the New Testament. The most common word used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we look at this particular word because it's very common. It is the word yayin or oinos. And the root of the word is this. It means boiling up or bubbling up. And the idea behind this very common word, which you will see in many parts of the New Testament, is that what they would do is they would take this wine or this grape juice and they would, they would boil it. They would boil it and reduce this type of wine to a heavy syrup or a paste. And then it was suitable then to be stored without fear that it would ferment and, or spoil. And the boiling process of this oinos would result in a kind of a paste or heavy syrup where most of the water was gone and those, they would boil it long enough such that the bacteria causing the fermentation would mostly be killed off. And then they would take that and they would put it. They would store it away. They would store it away later on. And when they wanted some wine, they would mix it with water in order to reconstitute it into a drink. Sort of, perhaps you might think of like some sort of concentrated grape juice. But even when it was left to ferment a little after that, the alcoholic content of that was still very low. And Jewish writings show that this type of wine, more often referred to that paste or the fermented drink that was very, very low in its alcoholic content, it was perhaps the word that, it was the word that Jesus used when he said, well, you don't put new wine into an old wineskin, connoting that it would be preserved in that context. And the practice of this boiling of this type of wine was very common in the Middle East and is still used today. In its syrup or paste form, you might imagine as it would be too, it was used as well to spread as a jam on bread and spread as a jam on pastries. But there was the unmixed portions that would sometimes be kept aside in order to make into wine. Robert Stein, writing in Christianity Today, wrote that Greeks would keep uh, unboiled, unmixed, and highly alcoholic wine in large junks called amphorae. But before they would, they would be consumed, this, this type of unboiled, unmixed, alcoholic wine, before it was consumed, they would often take that wine and mix it with water to as much in proportion as 20 to 1. And then it would be consumed. Because it was written in ancient texts that in drinking unmixed wine that the Greeks would often store in amphorae, drinking unmixed wine was considered barbaric or irresponsible and stupid. 
The unmixed wine, this which was stored away and not boiled into another type of wine, this unmixed wine would have an alcoholic content of somewhere around 11%, which would be similar to your table wine, which ranges from 8 to 14%. And very least, they would take this unmixed wine of 11% and at the very least proportion, they would mix it three portions of water to one portion of wine, making the alcoholic content somewhere around 2.5%, maybe 2.7 or whatever it might be. You compare that 2.7% to a cooler, which has anywhere from 4 to 7%, maybe 8 or a beer, which has about 5%. In other words, as it, at its most, at its most... Alcoholic percentage, it would be like a half the content of a bottle of beer. This oinos or this yayin would be. Typically, you would have to drink a lot of this very common wine in order to get drunk. And so here in this text, when one compares and says, well, they use wine in the scriptures, Jesus drank wine and wine is often found in the scriptures, you're not exactly comparing wine today with the same as wine yesterday. You wouldn't be comparing apples to apples. It would be like saying, well, my fresh squeezed orange juice is the same as your tang. Well, that is not true. The type of wine, oinos, was this type of wine that Jesus made, this type of wine that was flavored and low in alcoholic content when he transformed the water to wine. In the first miracle of the wedding in Cana, in fact, you might note, he told those individuals to put wine, water in those jugs first, perhaps even to show that, you know what, this is mixed wine. And then he transformed it in a miracle. So the answer to the question of should one drink it really depends. In some cases, maybe, and in others, it may not be. And so we ask ourselves a question. Are there a number of considerations such as, is it a wise choice? Or could it destroy me or cause me to sin? Or could it cause a younger Christian who knows uh, that I drink, could it cause them to stumble? Or, what does it do to my testimony? Does it enhance? Does it hinder? Or is it really necessary? And depending upon the circumstance, it may be fine, like many gray area things. And while in other circumstances, it may not be appropriate. And just as you and I, we choose to do what we do, and some things we choose not to do. And for myself, I choose not to do many things, not because it's necessarily wrong, because I feel that it would hinder my testimony as a pastor and drinking happens to be one of them. And it is not necessary, as some would argue, that, well, I have to relate to my you know, peers or whatnot and, and drink alongside of them. I think that many people respect you if you decide to abstain. They have a regard for that and they respect that kind of a decision. But in abstaining as sometimes I have chosen to do or I should say I've always chosen to do it enhances one's testimony or can enhance one's testimony as well at that pastor's conference after there was this big uh, uh, hubbub about uh, drinking and how it's not whatever I, I was able to tell them and I told them outright I've never had any 
alcohol in my entire life. I've never had a drink of any type to their great uh, approval and smiles and all of that, their validation. And it can help one's testimony in that depending upon the audience by which you're talking with or your friend or whoever it might be. So whether or not one drinks or doesn't drink, let me make it clear, it's not an indication of one's spirituality. It's not an indication of one's godliness. It, there is, though, the greater risk of things that may bring with that. But, in certain cases, it might be fine. And so, when we look at this passage, the question is, again, not, is it okay to drink or not okay to drink? The question is, what influences you? What controls you? When one is drunk, you're under the influence of alcohol. And yet even that, you could be under the influence of many other things. Under the influence of alcohol, of course, being drunk is, as I mentioned before, clearly sinful. The Bible says, do not be controlled or under the influence of wine, but, number two, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, we know what it means not to be drunk. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And this has been misunderstood and misinterpreted by Christians. So let me tell you what it is not. What being filled by the Spirit is not. It does not refer to the indwelling of the Spirit of God in your life. It does not refer to getting the Holy Spirit or receiving the Holy Spirit. Some denominations will teach that if you're not filled by the Holy Spirit, you don't have the Spirit at all. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you. You may be a Christian, and that may be even questionable, they may teach. But it does not refer to getting or receiving the Holy Spirit. When a person receives Christ as their personal Savior, God gives to them the Spirit of God in their life and indwells them and possesses them. The Spirit uh, dwells one's life. And this happens when a person is born again. So it doesn't refer to indwelling. It doesn't refer to receiving. Secondly, it does not refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this happens also at salvation. When one receives the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God baptizes you and places you within the body of Christ. All of those who are Christians are one body in Christ, one church. And from God's viewpoint, He knows everyone who is His child because they have been baptized into the body spiritually. Those who are baptized receive it at salvation. And so this isn't referring to that. It doesn't refer to being sealed or secured by the Holy Spirit. These terms refer to when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and it seals you or secures you, it keeps you, and you are always going to be a child of God. You don't lose the Holy Spirit sometimes and then get it back sometimes. Oh, I've lost Him today and I can't find Him tomorrow. It doesn't refer to any of that. That is what the Holy Spirit does to someone. He seals, He guarantees, He secures. And we looked at that in Ephesians chapter 1. Fourthly, not only is it not indwelling or baptizing or sealing, fourthly, it is not progressive. In other words, you do not get a little of the Holy Spirit today, and as you grow, you get a little bit more tomorrow, and you get a lot of it next week when you're at the retreat or whatever it might be. You don't get the Holy Spirit piecemeal. He's always all there, and He's either filling you or not filling you. It is not progressive. 
Fifthly, it is not some ecstatic experience. It is not some ecstatic experience. In other words, when you're filled by the Holy Spirit, you don't glow and you don't begin to speak in tongues. You don't begin to do and feel this tingling sensation all over your body. It is not some ecstatic experience when you live a life that is filled by the Spirit of God. That's not what it means. So what does it mean then to be filled by the Spirit? We look at the definition of what it means to be filled and I think that will give you an idea. It will give you an idea and it will tell you what it means to be filled by the Spirit of God. And the word is plerao. Plerao. And that is the word that is defined in three different senses. Three different senses and the definition will give you an idea of what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Number one, the first sense of the definition is given in the context of a wind filling the sails of a ship and carrying that ship along. And it's a dynamic that the Spirit of God is leading one along and one is led by the Spirit of God Himself. And it's the idea where there's a yieldedness and the wind carries that ship along and one is led by the Holy Spirit. So it has the idea of filling, filling a sail of a ship. The second sense in which that word is used is in the idea of permeation, of permeation. The sense that is given here is illustrated by that which is perhaps meat. Meat is permeated with flavor. Or if you marinate meat really, really well, you'll find that that meat is very flavorful. And in the same sense, the Spirit of God permeates everything about that person's life. They think the way they think, the way they act, the way they conduct themselves, the way that they, that they respond to life. It is the idea of permeation. So we have the idea of filling as a ship is led and filled in their sail. And then we have the idea of permeation. But the third, perhaps, communicates it best. And this is the sense of being in complete control. Where the Spirit of God completely controls one's life. Now you say to yourself, I've never seen or I've never really felt like I've never been out of control and somebody else has controlled my life or the Spirit of God has controlled my life. What is that like? Well, all of us, I think, have experienced something of this before. For example, when someone you love, you perhaps can remember, you have been to a funeral your parent or your spouse or your child or someone has passed away and your heart is filled with sorrow and you're sad and your thoughts during the funeral go back to the memories of, of, of that person. person that you loved and your heart and everything that you are, you're consumed with that thought of who they were and the memorial of them. Or perhaps you can remember when you were a little boy or a little girl and there was that other little boy, a little girl on the playground that you had some crush on and you became infatuated with them and you loved them and all you could think about on the playground was that of the little kid. Well, you were consumed in your thinking and your heart and your pulse would race when that little girl would run by. I remember this little girl, I think of myself, she would want me to chase her and all that. And I would chase around the, the playground until I got older and then I decided, well, my friends were more cool. <laughs> Maybe your mind, you see, was filled with that. 
Or maybe you are filled with anger or resentment or bitterness because someone offended you, someone hurt your family, and someone said something or did something cruel to you, and all you could think about, you were consumed with thinking about how that person has really, really offended you, and your emotions and your mind, and you had a hard time giving it up, and it dominated your thinking, or maybe it was something that you were afraid of. You were filled with fear or panic and it dominated your thinking. Your emotions responded to the danger or that threat. So you know what it is like to be filled. What is it like to be filled with the Spirit of God? Your mind, your emotions, your will, just as fear or love or many of those things, except it's the Spirit of God that has affected your complete person. And you notice it's a command. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's something that we take part in, in yielding ourselves to, that we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you may be at some times, and other times when we disobey God and we sin, we are not filled by the Spirit of God. Because the command here, literally, when you translate it, it says what? Do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, be continually filled by the Spirit of God. Every moment of every day, we are to be filled by the Spirit of God. And it translates it to a life that is what? When our mind and our heart and our will and our emotions, our affections are consumed with godly thinking, with godly praise, thoughts of His Word, what would please God. And it is a God-conscious life. It is a God-conscious life. If you don't think about God throughout the week until you come on Sunday to worship... That's not being filled by the Spirit of God. But if your thinking and your mind and your emotions and your desires are filled with the things of God and you realize throughout the day, I am a living instrument in the hand of God to be used by God and surrendered to God. Whatever God would want is my desire and that is my passion. Then what? God has control over you and you go through life and your thoughts are guided by God as you respond in a spirit-filled life. So you say, how do I know if I am? The Bible tells us. And it gives us four evidences of a spirit-filled life right here in the text. Four evidences and they're indicated by four participles. Part of speech, participles that they are here. These are four evidences. And they have the strength of an imperative or a command, but they are participles. And these are the four results given here in the text. Verse 19, it gives us two of them. Our speech with others. And secondly, our praise toward God. Our speech with others and our praise toward God. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And secondly, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You know, one of the clearest evidences of a spirit-filled Christian is joyful praise. And the word speaking refers to any sound. It's not a monopoetic word that sounds like it is. Any sound that offers as praise or thanksgiving to God, directed at God... Through our music, we express praise 
we express as we sing with one another or express our psalms and hymns. And it says spiritual songs, simply different forms of music. But it is singing and making melody in our heart to God that is the key idea. And we encourage one another when we sing and others hear us and we speak to one another. You know, I remember when I was living at home, my mother would walk around the house, oftentimes softly humming some tune, or sometimes she would just sit down. She would sit down and pull out her hymnal and and sing a song of praise to God. She wasn't doing it to be accountable, or she wasn't ever doing it because somebody, they have some program. It was just an expression of her heart. And a Christian who experiences the Spirit of God filling their life is filled with joy, is filled with praise. And they sing. And they sing in their heart. When we sing together, we sing as a church, and we sing, and in my mind's eye, when we sing the songs that are up here, I think of the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, where God is sitting on the throne, and I think of all of the descriptions of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the Ancient of Days, and how there is drawn for me a picture of heaven, and I ask myself, God, is God pleased with the offering that I have? And some people say, well, you know what, I don't sing because I just don't sound so good. Well, that's no excuse. God doesn't command what He doesn't give us the ability to do. I know someone very well. And they love to sing in their choir. And they've been involved with their choir for a long, long time. And I remember many times standing next to them and singing and they're just out of tune most of the time. It doesn't matter how well we sing because God hears the music of our heart, not of the reverberation of your vocal cords. And so I encourage you, be a person who expresses joy to God and is more concerned about the joy and the song from your heart than how it comes out. Because are we more concerned about how others think of us? Are we more concerned about what God thinks? You know, in Uganda, the sermons may sometimes be a little off or shallow and the church building may be dilapidated, but one thing they can do and you ask any of these folks that have gone is that they can sing. One Sunday, I remember being there, was a Sunday that I had the opportunity to preach at and all of our team were sitting there and they were hot and sweaty and the service had gone on and they were tired and they were falling asleep because it was so humid until the people began to drum and sing and dance and jump and it was such a worshipful time because they were more concerned, I believe, about how God perceived them. It was more of an expression of their heart than how well somebody who was standing next to them thought of their singing. And one of the things I I want to encourage you, even as parents, to do is when you have young children... Teach them songs. Teach them songs of the faith. And I'm not saying turn on your local Christian radio station when you're in the car. But there are some wonderful children's songs. And you go and you go to the Christian bookstore and purchase some songs so they can learn songs of faith. 
And I'll tell you why, because when I was a child and I would walk home from school, I was a little boy and I would walk home from the bus stop, and people, they are songs that would last throughout my life, and I would sing these songs when I was sad, I would sing these songs when I was lonely, or perhaps somebody did something to me, or maybe they perhaps doubted God, and I would say to myself, some people say, there is no God, but it's not true. And I would just sing because, you know what, these songs carry truth. Put a song in your child's heart so that they can sing and they can walk and it would help me to grow. Teach your children to sing the songs of faith. The third result is not only praise and how we speak with one another, the attitude of thankfulness. Verse 20. A spirit-filled life, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. You see, a spirit-filled life is thankful. They're not discontent, or envious, or jealous, or angry. They're not complaining. They're grateful. They're grateful because a heart that is focused on God is a heart that says, you know what, I'm undeserving. I'm not entitled to many things. I'm not even entitled to wake up today or to have the house that I live in or the car that I drive or whatever it might be. I'm undeserving. And anything we have, we have with gratitude. And we sing and a spirit-filled Christian is thankful and content. And when they have a glass that's half full, they don't even look at it perhaps as a glass half full. They're just glad there's a glass. You know, we sing and we give God thanks. And we say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 100 verse 4, I will enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter His courts with praise. I will say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. Fourthly, It is our submission to one another that is the evidence of our spirit-filled life. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The spirit-filled Christian submits, gives deference, is not selfish. Mutual submission here where we give deference. It's not a jockeying of who's better or on one-upmanship of who's right. It's not having domination. But it's that of deference, of submitting to one another, to the cares and concerns and the thoughts of others, that we might be, what, think more highly of others than ourselves. I'm not sure what your Christian life is like. I'm not sure what your Christian life is like day after day, week after week, but I can tell you that if there is unconfessed sin in your life, there is ingratitude or selfishness if it is filled with something other than God if it is filled with something other than the thoughts that God would have it's not a spirit filled life and you're not living a spirit filled life because a spirit filled life is filled with praise that comes from the heart it's filled with thanksgiving it's filled with with consideration of others and that begs the question what dominates your heart What dominates your life? What commands your thinking throughout the week? What is it? Is this some alcohol or drugs or money or resentment or anger? Or is it with thoughts of discontentment? Thoughts of anxiety because of grades in school? Thoughts of anxiousness or thoughts of entertainment or thoughts of food? 
Are you filled with thoughts that think to yourself moment by moment, day in and day out, and you live in a God consciousness that God is there, His presence is there, and the Word of God, as it says in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the Word of God richly dwell within you that permeates your life, that fills your life, and the Spirit of God moves you along just like a ship whose sail is filled. And the things that consume your emotions, your affections, your will, your thoughts are things about the King and the Kingdom. Is your life filled with that? God wants us to have a Spirit-filled life. Life submitted to Him for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we might be living sacrifices to you. Lord, I offer my life to you. Everything I will do, use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you as a living sacrifice. May we be fully submitted, fully surrendered, for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.